Thanks for joining us on The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we chat with key voices shaping the real estate industry and as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we speak with Jay Penjuan. Jay is a naval veteran, a successful developer, and an industrial real estate expert. On the podcast, we talk logistics, the Port of Los Angeles, and we gain deep insight into not only what's occurring in the real estate industry, but the future of industrial real estate. Look, if you're a developer, an investor, a broker, or someone that's doing public policy related to urbanization and the industrial real estate space, this podcast is well worth a listen. Jay, thanks for hopping on the podcast today. Great. Thank you, Gordon. I uh, really appreciate you having me. So tell us a little bit, bit about yourself before, uh, before we start. Yeah, sure. Um, originally from San Diego, California. Grew up there, born and raised, and then uh, went to the Naval Academy for college. Uh, I, I ran track there, uh, then spent did six years in the Navy after uh, the Naval Academy. I was a supply officer. Uh, basically, it means I was doing logistics on on a ship. So, did that for uh, three years on a ship, um, and did a couple deployments out to the Persian Gulf. Uh, then I had some shore duty, and then finished off my Navy career uh, in 2007, and then I uh, went off to business school at uh, UC Irvine. Um, so I did uh, business school there, and I knew or I felt like I wanted to to go into commercial real estate. And so that's was my focus. And that's, you know, the, that's what I did my internships in and ended up really loving it. And, you know, then is graduated 2009. So if you can recall, you know, the, the economic <laughs> environment in 2009 wasn't, wasn't the best, you know, probably um, not too, dissimilar from from what's happening now but i i think back then it, it was much much uh worse i think for for uh job prospects and whatnot um but you know through my networking efforts and meeting with a lot of people while i was in school um i was able to find a really solid opportunity uh doing uh office tenant rep brokerage with jll and that was a, a really great opportunity for me i I don't think I would have gone that route um, if the environment wasn't the way it was. But I'm I'm very grateful that I I I did that path. Uh, so you know I would actually encourage you know students you know looking to to make a career and and jump into commercial real estate. I think brokerage is a fantastic place to start. I just add that as an aside, but. Um, you know, it's not the typical post MBA career path um, that that most I think uh, choose out of out of business school, but it was the best for me, and um, and so I, I I did you know uh, felt like I did well uh, in that in that field, and and I was planning on this was going to be my career, and you know uh, you know because development I think at the time was really you know there was nothing going on, so I mean. It, that wasn't really a, a, a viable uh, path uh, for me at the time. But once I got into brokerage, I was like, this is it. I, I love this. And then, you know, 2011 came along, had an opportunity to to join Panatoni Development. And, you know, I actually kind of turned it down at first because I thought that, you know, this, I was good with brokerage. I, you know, year two, you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're starting doing your own deals. Um, and you already put in all the the hard legwork, and now you're starting <laughs> to see the fruits of your labor um, after you know in that year two mark um, from all the cold calling and knocking on doors and all that. So so that was really uh, uh, you know good experience for me, and that's why I, I initially turned down the opportunity uh, with with the Panatoni job. But after you know kind of further research and consulting with with mentors of mine, you know I just said hey. You know, I think this is this is probably an opportunity that I don't want to pass up, and you know I can always go back to brokerage if if it wasn't the right fit. Um, but I, I jumped in and went all in, and you know, 2011, you know, there wasn't a lot going on development-wise in, in industrial, but it was starting to see or show signs of life, 
And if, you know, looking back, I mean, that was pretty much the, the bottom of the market when I joined. And so as, as we all know, um, you know, it, it went straight up. So I want to cut in there. So sure. I always think it's funny as somebody who I didn't really get fully into the business until the mid 2010s. Um, yeah. And looking back, um, although the market was terrible, right? Like, I'm not going to tell anybody, oh, it was an mm -hmm. amazing market <laughs> in 2009. But yeah. the funny thing is, like, comparatively, we look back and we see, like, interest rates were relatively low. Like, mm -hmm. the, the price of money was relatively low. Uh, there was a lot of potential development opportunity, although monetary supplies were bad. You know, there, there were a lot of uh, signs that there were green buds kind of popping up all over. Um, do you think there was a reason why, other than fear, that a lot of developers were kind of hanging out or, 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 or kind of still waiting? Or um, uh, was it just really a fear-driven economy back then for the development world? Yeah, I mean, I th I think there uh, there's part of that is is uh, is valid. I think you know, just there were a lot of uh, layoffs in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, so you know, our industry and most industries got hit pretty hard. So oh, yeah. you know, just oh, yeah. having that fresh in your mind. I mean, it's hard to say let's go all in and uh, <laughs> and start 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 going vertical on on projects. Embrace so, your inner Warren Buffett. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I think that was definitely part of it. And then, you know, you know, back then, you know, consumer demand, you know, was still kind of muddling along and, and that's why they had to bring interest rates so low to spur the economy, to encourage business investment, encourage spending uh, by consumers. So, you know, it took a little bit. And then obviously with e-commerce, you know, no one really predicted how big of an impact and how massive an impact that would have in our our business and industrial, and that really turned out to be um, you know the, the key driver to to really push this whole thing into the into the stratosphere. Uh, so let's talk a little decade. bit. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about that and e-commerce. So um, look, Southern California has been um, very very much benefited by the e-commerce surge. All the business that's coming from um, the Far East. What what are you seeing in terms of California's growth? What have you seen over the last 10 years in California development? And kind of where do you see the future going in terms of that? Because I think you are one of the best situated individuals with both the brokerage background and the development background to kind of touch on the, the Southern California real estate landscape. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, so you know, like I said, you know, e-commerce has been such a, a, a great driver uh, for for our business. Um, you know, I think even, you know, let's say pre-pandemic, I think uh, market share was about, you know, uh, you know, 15%. And then it, you know, post-pandemic got up to, you know, in the low 20s. Um, so, you know, it's also projected to continue to grow. Uh, CBRE put out uh, some some data you know that they're projecting it to to get into the 30s in in the next 10 years. So you know there's there's still a lot of um, you know e-commerce uh, growth and potential that that still uh, has yet to be uh, realized. So I think that's going to be a major driver in Southern California. Um, I, but but I think you know the the biggest things. I mean we we have the ports of LA and Long Beach here, which uh, are the largest ports by volume in the U.S. by far. Um, you know, there, there has been some, you know, lost, uh, container traffic going to the East coast, um, during a, a labor agreement dispute. And then also during the, the pandemic, when there was a supply chain crisis and you saw the hundred ships lined up off the coast of LA and Long Beach. So, you know, th there was a little bit of shift, but we, we, we feel like that's going to start to come back now, now that the agreement's um, been, uh, been, uh, ratified. And there's certainty over the next six years um, uh, regarding the the labor issues. But uh, going back to just the ports, I mean, you know, forty percent of the goods coming into the U.S. are coming into those two ports. So it's a significant uh, uh, driver of of industrial real estate because once you once you bring 
goods in through the ports, they have to be stored somewhere. So where are you going to store them? You got to store them in, in Southern California warehouses, <laughs> you know, and then in Southern California industrial just doesn't serve our local population. You know, the, the region's uh, huge with 24 million uh, people. So we have enough volume and business here to, to just serve the local region, but we, we also uh, serve as a you know jump off point for the rest of the country. Uh, so it, that's a, a huge thing. Um, and, and the population is, is uh, as I mentioned, is, a, is another big, big driver. So yes, 24 million people. And, you know, you see in the, the headlines, you know, there people are leaving California in, in droves and they're, you know, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Everyone's going to Texas and Florida. Yes, to some extent, you know, that is true. You know, there are people leaving, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's still, you know, 24 million people. So it's uh, people want to live here um, and, you know, they l come here for the lifestyle and, you know, there, obviously there's, there's drawbacks like any other, 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 other place, but, you know, you know, growing up here and, and, um, and also living in other parts of the country, um, I'm glad to be back and, and raising my family here. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I got to experience other places and, you know, I, I felt like this is where I want to be. And, and I think 24 other million people also feel the same way <laughs> uh, to some extent, you know, maybe the, some of those are, are going to, going to leave it here in the near future, but you know, it's, it's, it's a place that people say, Hey, where could you live? Where, if you could live anywhere in the country, you know, a lot of people, you know, I, I would guess would say Southern California. So um, so we have that going for us. And, um, you know, the, the, the real estate market right now, I think for industrial at least is, is in a, in a very challenging spot right now, I think with, with the, the rising interest rates that, that, that program that the fed's been uh, doing really to, to combat inflation really since March of 22 uh, has really started to, to put a damper on, you know, business investment, you know, consumer spending, um, which is, you know, having a, a direct effect on, on our business and, and not to mention, you know, just interest rates, you know, trying to get construction financing for, for, uh, for a development project is, you know, three times as much as, as what it was two years ago. So, so you know, there, there's a lot of challenges out there right now because of the environment that we're in. And, you know, it kind of feels like, you know, if you look at the economy as a whole, like everything seems, you know, there's economic growth, GDP has been okay. Uh, the labor market is still very hot with unemployment at 3.8%, historic lows, uh, you know, but then you look at, you know, commercial real estate, banking, you know, lending environment, you know, those are very challenged uh, areas of the uh, economy right now. Um, so I think those industries are, you know, commercial real estate and real estate in general and, and, uh, and the banking industry are, are taking, uh, uh, much of the, 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 the negative, uh, effects of, of the, uh, interest rate hikes and, and, uh, and, and what's happening now in, in the overall economy. So I wanted to talk about some of those unique challenges to Southern California. So I know you mentioned earlier, um, because there, look, there's a lot going on, right? I'm not, I'm not negging yeah. Southern California, yeah. but, um, what, what we've seen in the past was you, we talked about the port of LA issues re regarding labor disputes, right? You say that most of those are over at this point and that we can predict now for the next, you know, four to six years that things will probably be hunky dory in, in Southern California's ports. Um, or is that something that's a concern going forward for people who are in e-commerce, industrial, real estate, warehousing, kind of in the southern uh, uh, quartile of um, uh, California? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that because you know the it, the port agreement just got ratified at the end of August, and so that takes us all the way to July of 2028. Uh, so we have. You know certainty and um, uh, labor peace through then, <laughs> um, and you know also regarding that, you know the East Coast has their labor agreement that they have to work through. Uh, they, I believe, it's September 2024 is when their uh, agreement uh, expires. 
So they are actively negotiating that now. And as you saw from the West Coast labor negotiations, it doesn't always go as smoothly as possible. <laughs> um, you know, the, the West Coast had a year of uncertainty there where the contract was expired and they were just operating and negotiating the, the contract at the same time. So it, uh, it takes some time, you know, and then, you know, I think also a big thing what's happening right now in terms of that's affecting the East Coast ports, ports and, and we'll, uh, I, I predict we'll, we'll bring back more container traffic to the West Coast ports is what's happening at the Panama Canal. There's a severe yeah. drought that's going on right now and it's uh, likely extended uh, water restrictions for the next 10 months, maybe longer. So, you know, all that means is, you know, you have a, a typically a bigger ship that would be able to pass through. Now those, because of the water restrictions, you can't have those larger ships pass through the canal. So you have to break up that one shipment into three shipments. And so all that costs is, is time and, uh, and money. So, you know, it's uh, if you're a supply chain uh, professional, you know, you have to look at that and weigh that versus, you know, just the it seems like the easier option would be to 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 divert container traffic to the to the West Coast ports. So that's that's my my feeling there, and especially, you know, like I said, with Southern California, with ports of L.A. and Long Beach. I wanted to touch back on kind of the logistics at, at the port. So the labor uh, situation has been resolved. But one of the big things that all of us Midwesterners and East Coasters kept seeing in the news was the issues that were going on in terms of the logistics um, at the port due to all the growth and expansion mm -hmm. with um, moving uh, containerization from uh, truck uh, from ship ships to trucks, trucks to trains. I know I I have a background where I actually worked at the Federal Maritime um, organization that monitors a lot of that mm -hmm. um, in during my time in law school. And so, um, uh, based on my time at the Federal Maritime Commission, I'm just curious how has that process gone in terms of digitalization, using AI, using automation? It, has the port kind of fully wrapped around? The ability to handle volume, or are we still kind of going through quirks of uh, rapid growth? Yeah, I, I think you know it's a combination of you know the consumer demand um, and and uh, consumer spending have, have really kind of tapered off from from the supply chain crisis when everyone was at home. You know, there was money being flooded into the economy, so people had nowhere to go, and so they were just buying stuff like crazy online. You know, so so that was a, a very unique situation. So obviously, you know, the the system wasn't necessarily prepared for that sort of uh, 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 supply chain uh, issue, um, and so that has tampered down. And so I think, you know, with the with the port agreement in place. You know, everybody's working, you know, full full speed ahead and, and all that. So, you know, the 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 backlog issues that you 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 read about and saw in the news are are really I, I think at least for the moment a thing of the past. But we'll we'll see kind of how things things continue to evolve. But but I also think in terms of like um a, a big thing that, that we're facing right now, I think is just uh at the the ports they're they're uh there's a real push for uh, electric vehicles. So, yeah. you know, uh, there's a, a, a law that's, or that, that's being um, uh, enforced here that, that you basically, by the end of the year, you have to uh, have all your diesel trucks registered into the system um, that uh, it's called truckers, T-R-U-C-R-S. Um, and so all the, folks that have trucks that go into the port, they have to have their diesel trucks registered. Um, and then the eventual plan is to have all diesel trucks banned at the ports by 2035. Um, so the, the big issue is that we don't have necessarily in California, the infrastructure yet to accommodate all of these, these diesel, I mean, these uh, electric trucks. So, so yeah, that's, that's a lot of yeah, that's a lot of ampage right there. Right, a, lot yeah. of, a lot of volts are going through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think California has their own issues, you know, trying to figure that out, and 
you know, so the, I think uh, the the folks that that are uh, you know really active at the ports and, and sending a lot of trucks, they're they're purchasing diesel trucks now to get them kind of grandfathered in until you know really 2035 because you know i think typically the the life of these trucks is kind of 13 to 15 years so that takes you right up to that 2035 uh point and so i guess you know you you uh you figure it out by then and you know maybe the costs start to come down because right now the the electric vehicles or, or electric trucks are much more expensive uh harder to maintain as well than the diesel but you know obviously it's cleaner energy so you know, there's obviously a big push towards that. So I think that's something that we're really going to watch in our, our industry because it's going to affect us at, at some level. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely affecting the, the users who, and occupiers of our, of our buildings because um, they're going to have to uh, make those sorts of decisions. And then also for, from a developer standpoint, we would at, at some point also include EV charging for trucks in our truck ports. So, so those yeah. are, it's a development that's, that's going to happen. But again, you know, where's the power going to come from? How are we going to generate that? You know, I think they're also counting on, or the state is, is counting on offshore wind power. Um, so that technology, I, I assume is ready, but, you know, to get the permits and get the construction, I mean, that, that takes years and years. And, and as you know, in, in California, nothing is ever easy. So I can't imagine, you know, that that's going to be a, a quick process to get approved and to get up and running. Um, so yeah, so it's it's definitely something to watch. And, and as as uh, as things continue to to evolve here, we're we're going to uh, definitely be following it closely. Yeah, as someone who's worked with developers um, in a lot of capacities as a broker. Uh, it's going to be a huge load on the grid and um, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how that ends up playing out. I wanted to follow uh, up on kind of the similar pattern that we've been talking about, which is design and construction changes and kind of the evolution of logistics and warehousing. And so you're well situated uh, in a development role to, to kind of, be discussing the future of kind of where you see warehouses, particularly in a high growth area going. Mm -hmm. What do you see are like the biggest evolutionary design trends and uh, trends that we will see kind of filter to the middle and kind of other parts of the country uh, as warehouse design improves? I'm guessing automation, mm -hmm. um, uh, warehouse tech. What do you what are you starting to see? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great question um, because the one of the biggest problems that we have just over, as, as an economy overall is is labor, right? So that's no different in in our world in in the uh, in warehouse industry because you know we we need obviously warehouse workers to um, to you know package, assemble, do you know all the distribution within the warehouse, um, so. With a labor shortage, it makes it obviously very difficult to run your business. So I think the future is automation, um, like you mentioned. So automation, you know, really requires Class A buildings. So in uh, LA and Orange County, the average age of a building in in our market is about fifty years old. So and that's across about one point two billion square feet of of warehouses. So LA alone has almost a billion or right about a billion square feet. And then Orange County is about 260 million. So, you know, it's really 1.3 billion or so total um, in, uh, in warehouse square footage. So, and a majority of it is, uh, is older, you know, older product. So that does not work well, you know, the older product, you know, the lower clear height, um, you know, the, the, the floors that are, that aren't, flat that have slopes don't work with well with robotics. And so that's, I think the the future is going to be, you know, redeveloping a lot of these older obsolete buildings and creating, uh, you know, the true class A with a super flat floor to, to help with the, the robotics, you know, the, the that are going to be and all the, the uh, mechanical equipment and all everything that's going to be 
uh, running up and down the aisles of, of the warehouses. And then also, you know, with the clear height, you know, cause you'll, you'll be able to, to stack higher. So that's, you know, 32 to, to 40 foot clear uh, uh, warehouses. So, you know, some of these older buildings are 18, 22, 24 foot clear if you're lucky. And so, you know, that's just not going to cut it for what's needed. Um, and what's needed is these, you know, robotics and automation to really make up for the lack of, of labor that, that uh, uh, really the lack of labor that, that's out there in the market right now. So I, I think that's a, a big opportunity uh, for developers here in the future is to, to really um, embrace that. And, you know, I think in the short term, it, it feels like, you know, there's a lot of uh, headwinds in terms of, you know, construction starts are way down right now because of the economic environment that we kind of previously touched on. But I think, you know, once we get past this this uh, part of it, you know, uh, the, the need for Class A is going to be that much more greater uh, to, to really fill the demand um, that's going to be there. Uh, because of you know e-commerce growth, which is projected, as I mentioned, to grow up to thirty uh, percent or so in the next ten years, so you're going to need warehouse workers to to do that. But if you can't get warehouse workers, you know automation, I think, is the is the future, and that's the answer. So I I know I've been a uh, uh, contrarian voice on real estate Twitter often about uh, forecasting. Uh, development further and further and further out from metropolitan areas. And, and that's definitely along that route, uh, route of uh, thinking where uh, we're starting to see a lot more last mile and um, uh, infill delivery and redevelopment in Chicagoland. Um, mm -hmm. I know that's, at least from my perspective, or I, I, I'm guessing that's the future. Um, are, are you starting to see that? And are you starting to see that from... Um, uh, removing of industrial sites or what we're seeing more is like retail and kind of uh, outdated uh, other asset classes. Is that primarily where we're seeing and maybe eventually it moves to industrial? What are you seeing in um, Southern California? Yeah, I, th I think the because of e-commerce, you know, I, I think we'd like to be closer and closer to the consumer as possible, as you mentioned, for the last mile kind of aspect. Um, you know, I, I think that's going to be a, a big thing um, because, you know, when you're ordering stuff online, people want it faster and faster. So, you know, like you're, you're just looking at Amazon, right? They're, they have, uh, you know, what Prime used to be like two-day shipping, then it got to one-day shipping, and then now you can even get overnight shipping and same-day delivery. So, so that's just getting faster and faster. So in order to meet those those needs of the consumer, you're going to have to get closer and closer to the where uh, to the to the population areas and the urban areas. Uh, the issue is that you know the the neighbors and the the residents do not want industrial closer and closer <laughs> to to warehouse or to their neighborhoods, but they want the 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 packages faster. So you know it's a it's a constant battle, um, and you know we see that a lot here in our market as well in terms of the the nimbyism, not in my backyard. You know, there's been several efforts, you know, from a legislative standpoint to create buffer zones uh, around residential and other sensitive receptors like schools and parks and, 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 and those sorts of things. So, so we, we've seen that year after year. So we, we expect that sort of pushback to continue. Um, but, you know, obviously that keeps getting, you know, for the first couple of years, uh, last few years, they've, uh, those efforts have been shot down fairly early in, in those uh, processes uh, to, to try to get passed into law. Uh, so we'll continue to make those efforts through, through NAOP and other organizations that have a, a direct effect um, on, you know, uh, on, you know, warehouse development. So, so that's something I think we'll, we'll continue to, to push against. And, um, you know, I think for, for the betterment of, of the economy, you know, I think we, we need it. You know, obviously we need the, the warehouses to, to keep goods moving and to keep consumers you know, spending and, and to, to keep the economy going. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions, and um, I'd love to touch on exactly what you're talking about, 
is that people see warehouses and industrial as such a dirty word, right? Mm -hmm. They imagine like images from like the 1970s Blues Brothers movie of Gary, Indiana and smoke and billowing, at least in (laughs) Chicagoland, right? Right, yeah. And and, um, industrial in the modern age, particularly industrial warehousing and in a lot of areas just isn't that anymore. I mean, we live in such a, a clean era of industrial in the United States, particularly post the EPA. And look, right. the, the EPA in California and Illinois are both pretty tough. So um, in terms of in terms of the warehouse space that, that you're going to walk into, some of them are clean enough that you could eat off of the floor. And, oh, yeah, you know, right. Um, how, do, how do developers uh, kind of change that perception? Because... It, I think that's probably the biggest gap to allowing more infill and more safe and clean infill mm-hmm. in a lot of areas that historically have been pretty against industrial. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, in particularly in California, the, you know, the, the process that we have to go through um, is unique to, you know, other parts of the country. We have uh, uh, California Environmental Equality Act, CEQA. Uh, so it's a, a process that we have to go through that, you know, you have to uh, prove that your development project using science, you know, with with math and science and and uh, the, the all the information that we have to, to prove that, you know, the, the development that we're going to propose is good for, you know, greenhouse gas, noise, air quality, traffic. We have to prove all these out. And that's why you know, the entitlements in our part of the world takes, you know, sometimes, you know, 15, 18, 24 months if you have to do an EIR, um, environmental impact report. So, you know, we have to go through a pretty stringent process. And I think, you know, we've also shown that historically, you know, the the air is actually now cleaner because of all these, you know, laws that have been pushed through and, and, you know, force the uh the development community to adhere to um so like you said i mean it's the the images of of industrial from from uh from the back in the day are are just a a kind of a a unfortunate misconception and so like how how do we combat that how do we show that i think it's just through education and um and and also you know from being present in the community um and being more involved um because we're obviously as developers we're we're investing in these communities so you know we need to also invest in the communities in other ways by you know uh, you know through education efforts like one thing um that's a, a big uh, effort that I'm a part of through uh, NAOP Inland Empire and also to some extent uh, NAOP Southern California uh chapters is that uh, we go out to high schools and we we talk to high schools and talk to them about commercial real estate careers and you know other you know just introduce the industry to them and so, you know it's um, at a at a more of a grassroots level and I think you know slowly over time I mean that's really what it's going to take and and just sometimes the unknown is is creates fear for people so. I think the the more present we are in the communities, the more active we are, you know, I think that's going to uh, bode well for us. So I think it's it's very worthwhile for us to continue to doing and continue these efforts through through NAOP and and other organizations um, that that are are pushing for for these sorts of things in our communities. So, yeah, um, I, th- I think pushing for development through being truly invested in communities is almost always the best way um, to to move forward because ultimately, uh, particularly for us, right, uh, at at our firm, um, the way that we operate and uh, the development wing of our firm uh, is a long hold group. And so we don't come in and flip properties. We invest in communities for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, And so uh, to not have that partnership just it just doesn't make sense not only uh logistically but financially as well and yeah. um so many so many more developers um or so many developers would get so much more out of not only their investments but just generally in their careers if they invested in the communities that they were in so i wanted to to follow up um 
uh, with kind of the whole process in terms of how you find um, and go through the um, due diligence and acquisition periods. Um, we we certainly can't uh, always mitigate political risks, so we'll take we'll take that in terms of uh, understanding if a project is going to get maybe off the ground or not politically, kind of and put it aside. But what are the key metrics that you use to look at acquiring property, either for infill or for just a general development? Yeah, so I think you know, the the big thing right now um, when we're finding uh, new opportunities is you know, we're, we're all, you know, you know, using a, a untrended yield on cost number that we're trying to, to solve to. And so these days it's, it's changed quite a bit from two years ago. So, you know, two years ago, just for some context, I think, you know, the untrended yield on costs, you know, would probably be in the high, high force. Uh, and, and we, we might not even look at that untrended yield on cost number because rent growth was so, uh, strong, um, and there really wasn't much of a need to to look at that metric. But but nowadays, I think more than ever, we're really focusing on that metric. And and today in Southern California, it's you know depending on location, but but l- roughly you know it's a you're solving to a six to six and a half untrended yield on costs for you know true infill areas. Um, so some of the more uh, secondary markets or secondary areas within Southern California, you'd, you'd need to be higher, six and a half, six and three quarters, seven percent, even in, in some cases. But you know, generally speaking, you're, you're trying to solve to that yield on cost. But but the the problem is, or one of the problems is that you know right now with with the the way the market's going, it, it's really hard to to peg where the the lease rates are because the the untrended yield on cost number is the NOI over the total project costs. So if you feel that lease rates are flat or even falling in some some cases, that makes it hard to predict where things need to be, and it makes it difficult to to determine what price that you can pay for the land. Um, and then, you know, I think uh, the other big thing is now, you know, a lot of folks especially on the the capital side capital partners they're they're more risk off uh mentality right now and where yeah. two years ago you know everyone was just looking for any reason to do a deal in southern california you'd take on entitlement risk you do you know a 45 day due diligence and then close in 15 days you know those days are behind us those days are gone you know so now it's we need time to get a site entitled and permitted um, and sh- basically shovel ready before we can close. So uh, I alluded to earlier the the length of time it takes to get entitlements could be, you know, twelve months, fifteen months, even twenty four months in some cases. So so you're asking a seller now, hey, we we paid X, you know, two years ago, but now it's much much less now today, and then on top of that we we need time to um to close so we're not going to close in 15 months from now and you're we're paying 30% less than what it was 2 years ago so how how's that sound seller and so a lot of sellers just like hey you know we, we if we don't need to sell we're not going to sell so really you know you're you're you have to find these sellers that have an actual need to to sell you know and that's created by a life event uh, like you know, death, divorce, taxes, retirement, those sorts of things, which would cause a need for that particular seller to to sell their property. Because uh, two years ago and three years ago is really just you know it was like they're winning the lottery because it's like oh can you hit this price and oh yeah sure we could do that because we have rent growth you know we can justify <laughs> any deal debt was cheap and and readily available equity was was readily available as well. So, you know, it, it was a, a much easier to identify opportunities and then put them together and have them pencil. So these days, obviously, it's it's much more difficult. You're having to, to find that right seller. And then if you find that right seller, you know, you have to obviously agree to the to the new normal and the new pricing and all that. And, you know, and if, if they've been, um, you know, uh, condition to 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 feel that the, their values were 
were much higher, it's going to be a lot harder pill to swallow if, if they're going to have to, uh, to, to take a much lower number. Um, so, so there's a psychological kind of aspect to it as well, um, that we're battling right now, but, you know, we're, we're still, you know, kind of in the early stages of this. So, I mean, it just takes time for folks to come around and, you know, folks ha that have to sell or are, are going to sell, you know, they, if, if they, if there's a need. So. So in conversations with other brokers in a wide plethora of markets, everything from Canadian brokers to brokers on the East coast, to Texas, Florida, the, the middle, the middle in terms of Nashville, Memphis, Every conversation when I talk to folks, um, it's always that people that are on the sell side are still looking at 2021, 20, early 2022 numbers. I can't tell you how many times I talk to folks that are coming in that we gave offers in 2021, 20, early 2022, uh, based on a bunch of capital that some of my investors were deploying. And say, hey, you know, I'd love, you know, I'd, I'd love to take that offer at six million. And we go, your building's not worth six million yeah. anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and that's usually not a great conversation. Um, in, right. <laughs> in, in, in terms of um, in terms of that, are you starting to see sellers come down in California, or is there still not a meeting of the minds between? The sellers riding high in 2021, 2022, and the buyers who are trying to finance deals at a much different price point uh, now that we're in kind of the 2023 high interest rate environment. Yes, I think there's a few sellers that that have come down, um, but I think it's still not low enough. I think for for transactions to happen. Um, there's been very few land transactions that have occurred in our market, uh, re, you know, in the past year, really. Um, it's It's been very slow from the land acquisition standpoint. You know, there's a few deals here and there that, that have closed, but, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's very muted. Um, I, I think a, a lot of that is, you know, driven by like the, that yield on cost number that we're solving to with, with the way lease rates are behaving. You know, there is a some pockets of of the market have um, more supply than others, so you know you start to see those lease rates get affected, um, and so that hurts your overall equation. And then you know you're solving to um, that that yield on cost, and you know now the, the the land number that you're 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 previously asking for needs to be much lower if if lease rates are coming down at some level. So um, it's a it's a it's a tough tough uh, spot right now i think you know you, you hear about oh you know no, no one wants to catch the the falling knife right so so that's kind of kind of what it is um you know and before it was more of a fear of missing out mentality so now you know there it's more of a fear of being early um so but i i will say that you know overall the sentiment is that land pricing has come down quite a bit and so it's impossible to to time the market. No one really knows where the true bottom is. So, you know, at, at some point you have to make some, you know, strategic bets and be like, hey, this is this is a good spot because the market's moved so much. We and and remember all the things that I mentioned earlier in the podcast that, you know, California, all the great things, you know, and the reasons to be here and if you're an industrial. So, um you know, you, you can't forget those those main points. Um, at, you know, even with with all the uncertainty that that's out there. Um, so right. I think you know it's just something you know unique time in the market. You know, there's a, a significant amount of fear. A lot of you know just people watching around. A little bit of herd mentality as well, um, and you know waiting for for things to 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 start start happening. And it, and I think a lot of it is really triggered by what is the fed going to do right so they have obviously been really focused on getting inflation down to two percent um the only lever that they can pull is you know raising interest rates you know yesterday they just announced that they're going to keep interest rates uh flat um so it, but hinted at they may you know raise them again at some point later this year so 
you know, I don't think the the market really responds to that. The market wants to see more certainty. And until things really start to say, okay, now we're going to have, we're going to set forth a plan to start reducing rates, then I think we'll, we'll start to see maybe more, more activity um, on, on out there. So I'm not going to make you uh, uh, play the role of Jerome Powell, but um, <laughs> it's an unbelievable job to be in. No, yeah. It takes it from all sides and yeah, can't, can't win. <laughs> it's a tough job. But I will make you play one game before we end. And so that is our final four. <laughs> Uh, our final four is always a fun opportunity to learn a little bit more about our guests, learn a little bit more yeah. about the market, and learn a little bit more about the real estate world. So the first question of the final four that we that we always love to ask is, where do you see commercial real estate going um, 10 years from now? And you can stick it to just Southern California. It could be where, wherever you see in the market. But where do you... Uh, see the future going and you got to put on the Nostradamus cap for at least a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, the future for Southern California industrial in the next 10 years is going to be great. I think, as I mentioned previously, you know, with e-commerce uh, market share projected to get to, you know, 30% and low 30s in the next 10 years, that's going to bode well for, for industrial real estate because e-commerce, uh, just the way it's set up, uh, in the supply chain needs more warehouse uh, square footage than, you know, just an average, you know, kind of brick and mortar retail operation. So I think that's going to be a big thing. Um, you know, I think that, you know, our population, you know, 24 million people, you know, will take a few hits, but it's not going to be meaningful enough to to have a significant impact, you know, so I think that's going to continue to be strong and, and hold up Southern California industrial really well in the next 10 years. And then the other big thing, as I mentioned earlier, was the the automation piece with with the labor shortage that we're in now. I don't see that going any away anytime soon. So you know you're going to have to have um, automation to to really uh, augment the your your workforce. Um, and and also in terms of you know quality of jobs, that's always been a, a hit or a, a knock on on uh, warehouse development is. You know, oh, the the warehouses don't provide quality jobs, but you know, with with technology, with AI, with automation, you know, you're going to need some very technical, skilled uh, workers to operate, maintain, and to develop this sort of technology uh, going forward. So I think that's uh, going to be a key thing, and uh, really refute that that argument that that warehouse. Uh, uh, industry really doesn't provide quality, uh, high paying jobs. So, so that's, I think going to be a development as well in the next 10 years. And then, um, I don't see the, the, you know, this push in terms of electrical electric vehicles and, and, and that I think that's going to continue to, 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 to make its presence known. Um, you know, we're going to, as a development community, we're going to have to, you know, figure that out and adapt and, and, and adjust like, like we always do, you know, with new technology. So, you know, it's, it's not always doom and gloom. You know, I, I think naturally, you know, most folks are probably just resistant to change and, you know, but it's a, it's a change that, that I think that that's coming. And, and we're, we're, you know, at the end of the day, we're all resilient. We'll, we'll figure it out just like we have over the, you know, that's 200 year history plus of this, of this country. So, um, yeah, so I, I think there, there's a lot of things to be excited about for Southern California industrial real estate moving forward in the next 10 years. And it's going to, you know, ready, ready for a, a good long run again. So I, I'd like to touch on one thing you said, uh, where you're talking about the warehouse employee is a very different employee than a lot of people who um, aren't necessarily as familiar with the industry. Uh, I was just recently up at a uh, event at our local community college, and um, they were doing a uh, uh, warehouse em employee training session. And many of the employees were learning uh, Python code and were uh, retooling machines and retooling um, uh, automation tools. Right. And so, mm -hmm. I, and 
look, there are many people that work white collar jobs today that didn't have the Python skills that these warehouse workers did and are paid less. And so yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I think the world of warehousing and industrial, be it you know metal retooling or all sorts of things that go on is vastly different than the image that we have of a 1950s or 60s uh, you know sweatshop warehouse. It's just yeah. not. It's just not. It's <laughs> yeah. just not that way anymore. Right. And so um, I I think that's something that really we need to change as an industry, at least how people perceive it. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, we'd like to change um, about, uh, you know, sometimes is something that we handled in the past. And so one of the things we'd like to do is take a step back and take a step back, Jay, into your past. And mm -hmm. so if you could have given yourself one minute of advice back in high school, what would that advice have been? I'll preface that, uh, you know, by just saying that I think Everything that I've done to this point has also made me who I was. So the mistakes I've made, the things I didn't do, the things I did all contributed to, to where I am today. So I wouldn't really necessarily change anything. But I, I will say, um, and maybe it's just more advice for, for others rather than, you know, in, in that spot, rather than for me. You don't have to, but you don't have to really change anything. If yeah. 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 <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah. But, but, but I would say, um, you know, cause I've always been in sports, you know, I, I, I ran track, you know, college and whatnot. And, um, you know, I, I think in sports and, and growing up in sports, like we, we've always had coaches in, 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 you know, to, to get better, help us see things that we didn't, we didn't necessarily see when we're out there on the field, out there on, on the court. So uh, I think from a business standpoint, you know, a lot of folks don't really hire business coaches, but I think, you know, if you're trying to get to that next level, you know, the earlier you start and the earlier you start investing in yourself, uh, the better, you know? Um, so I think that's true, you know, hiring a business coach, you know, and yes, it, it may seem like a lot of money up front, but I think also at the same time, I mean, it's investing in yourself. So it's, it's really, it, you know, I think it, it pays for itself in, you know, in so many ways, many times over. So, you know, you, that's one thing I think um, I, I would tell myself to, to read more, um, you know, because I think, you know, that also contributes just to, to, you know, just more knowledge and, um, you know, and, and maybe when I was younger, I wasn't interested in that. So it just wasn't the right time, right, for me to absorb the the material that I was reading. But, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I do audiobooks. So that technology wasn't be available back then. Um, so but but audiobooks, I, I you know, I, every day I'm, I'm listening to an audiobook and it's all, you know, nonfiction, all self-development stuff that, you know, inspirational biographies, you know, uh, stories about folks who, you know, came from nothing and then somehow persevered and kept going and kept getting up, you know, get knocked down seven times, get up the eighth time and, and make it right. So, so all that stuff, you know, I'm filling my head with all that positive kind of information constantly, you know, I've cut out all the, I, you know, I don't watch any news really. So, you know, other than, you know, news in my industry or, you know, but I'm not sitting around watching like TV or, you know, binge watching Netflix or anything like that, you know, cause that, that doesn't help me get to that next level that I'm trying to get to. And, you know, it's, uh, so, so I've been very conscious of that and really um, being very intentional about how I, um, uh, you know, structure my day. And so I wish I could do that earlier, but, you know, I think that's maybe more advice for, for the, for the next generation um, who are, who are just getting into it. Well, my wife always tries to get me to watch uh, Selling Sunset and Selling the <laughs> and, and, and says, yeah. oh, it's real estate, though. Like, you know, you're learning. And I'm like, honey, honey, no, 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 no. Um, but but um, in terms of books, you mentioned books. And one of the things we love to do on the podcast is talk about how books um, really reshape our minds and really mm -hmm. kind of uh, reshape how we perceive the world. Yeah. And I'm curious if you have a recommendation for one of our uh, you know, listeners out there who's curious about what book they should pick up or plug into their audiobooks uh, next. Yeah, I, 
Uh, you know, I have a, a ton of books that I could recommend, but I'm just going to give you my the last one that I just finished yesterday. Actually, was that's uh, fine. Yeah. Walter Isaacson's uh, Elon Musk. So it's a, a oh, brand exactly. new book that that just came out. I've read uh, or listened to the Elon Musk biography um, that was done by someone else previously, but this one was so much more better in in terms of it got into more of um, you know his the history with his father kind of history growing up and, and the difficulty that he had, um, you know, we talked about, you know, adversity, making you who you are, you know, it really shows you, you know, the stuff that he went through as a young kid, the abuse, you know, mental abuse that he kind of went through uh, growing up really shaped him to, to, to where he is now. Um, Cause I mean, you know, the, the things he's doing is, is just, you know, okay. just one company that he's, he's built his is you know changing the world but he's built several you know you can go back to you know paypal um you know tesla spacex you know i mean it's it's a crazy and then this new thing uh um uh i think it's new uh new i can't remember uh begins with an f but, yeah new link yeah yeah Neuralink. yeah, 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 Neuralink. Neuralink. yeah, yeah that's no. i mean that's that's amazing. Like what he's trying to do. I mean, you know, it's basically people with, you know, ALS or, you know, they're, they're doing human trials right now. got approved by the FDA. So I just saw that, that, so you basically implant this, you know, chip and by a, a robot does it. And then, and then your thoughts can, can like move, you know, your, your body. So, which is amazing, amazing technology. Um, so, and and then, uh, you know, in his spare time, he, you know, acquired Twitter, now X. So, you know, he's running, running that business. So, yeah. Just in his spare time. Just yeah, in his spare time. So, yeah. And, and I, oh, I, I missed the the boring company, that company that he has. And then uh, I think there, there's, oh, the, the solar roof company that's that he acquired, Solar City, part of now integrated into to Tesla. But, but still, I mean, that's another kind of business line that's, you know, just pretty amazing stuff. Um, you know, obviously he, he has his, his flaws and, um, and, you know, you, you say, Oh, you know, there's some people say, Oh, I, I would love to be Elon Musk, but, you know, I think you have to take everything with it. You can't just say, I want the, the money of Elon Musk, but not <laughs> accept everything else. I mean, you know, he did go through a lot of trauma in his early years and, you know, he, you know, he, he is very, you know, difficult, I think, um, with his, with his, uh, employees and stuff, but, you know, he pushes them to, to new heights. So, you know, you have to take all of that. You can't just kind of pick and choose what you like about him, I think. Um, but you know, I, I just thought it was just a really fascinating listen or, uh, read in some cases, but, um, I would, I would highly recommend it. It was a pretty long, uh, book, but, you know, I can speed up the, uh, the listening speed a little bit and but it, it was really you know i i uh, it was long but i i didn't i didn't really want it to end because it was you know just really fascinating story um you know for one individual to to be able to do all this sounds like a great recommendation but we have one final recommendation that you have to make for us sure. and <laughs> the whole reason for the podcast is we seek out men in the arena or women in the arena who are in the real estate field or adjacent to the real estate field who tend to know other individuals that would be worthwhile bringing on the podcast and talking to. So um, what's your recommendation for our next guest? Yeah. You know, I think that's a very good question because there's a lot of, a uh, lot of potential options and, you know, I, I, I would, I would lean on, you know, some of the the folks that, um, that I see active on on LinkedIn, in addition to myself, you know, in in our market, you know, the first name that you know comes to mind, Sean Ward with CBRE. You probably know Sean. Right. Um, yeah. You know, so he's uh, extremely active on LinkedIn and has you know quite a quite a following. Um, so I th I think he'd be a, a great great addition. Um, you know, a, another uh, a, and Sean's with CBRE. Uh, Justin Smith as well. He he has his own podcast that that he does, but but he's also very active on on LinkedIn, and um, you know I think he'd he'd be a fantastic guest. He's also an, an author, 
Um, he's written one book, Industrial Intelligence, and uh, I believe a second one is is on the way. And so you know, I've uh, listened to the first one on Audible and it's been very highly recommended. So um, yeah, yeah, those are two two names in our local market off the top of my head. And uh, you know, happy to recommend more offline. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Like those sound like great names, yeah. uh, but we have one more question to ask you sure. before we wrap up, and that's uh, the second most important question: How does somebody reach out, get in contact with you, Jay, if they want more information, or you know, they want to reach out to you for uh, development advice, or they want to work with you in the future? Sure. Yeah, I, I think the the best way is just through LinkedIn, and you know, I, the and and then we can take it from there. So you know, my my uh, profile is is readily uh, and easily available to to find. Just search my first and last name, and and I'm there. And and I'll also add, uh, you know, our 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 firm, uh, Scanell Properties, also has a, a podcast ourselves uh, under development. And um, I've uh, I've been the host for the past. You know, we had six episodes so far. So we're you know do it every month. And you know, I think that's just another way to to reach out to people and and get a wider audience, just like you're doing. And you know, happy to uh, continue doing that. And, um, you know, and, and like I said, I think LinkedIn is, is, is really a great platform. That's the best way to reach me. And then we'll, we'll take it offline from there, set up a, a call or email and, and all that. But I think uh, that first step is, is the best way to get a hold of me. Jay, thank you so much for hopping on. And uh, we'll put all your contact information in there and we great. have to have you on in the future. Great. Thank you, Gordon. Yeah. Happy to uh, be a guest anytime. Really enjoyed it and uh, have, have a good one. Thanks again to Jay. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a comment, or review. Your subscriptions, your interactions, they truly matter. They help us with the algorithm and help us continue to get quality guests. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening. 